Welcome to the World of Horror Podcast, episode 84. I'm Mom. And I'm Mac. This is the podcast where we share our love of international horror. Fear is universal, but we are not afraid of subtitles. <laughs> Whoa-hoes! <laughs> gotta get, we gotta get like a megaphone. Just have Alan, that'll be like Alan's job, like... Like get in here off camera it's, we're recording alan get the megaphone he's like standing like in the doorway <laughs> <laughs> well if this is the first time you're listening to the show um we usually get into it a lot faster but anyway go back and listen to a couple i think it'll make more sense this week mom's genre pick is a woman obsessed movies we reviewed Sympathy for Lady Vengeance from South Korea and Misery from the U.S. Before we get into it, fair warning, these discussions will include spoilers and language, which may not be suitable for all listeners. Let's move on to our first segment, Mom and Mac Chat. Hi, Mac. How's it going? It's going, you know, I feel like there's something in the air. Well, I might, I might say this, if you roll back the tape, I might say this every week, which is depressing, but I feel like something, especially this week was, was brewing in the air to make it bad. Oh, I could be wrong, but I just felt so lazy this week. Well, okay. I am. I did also switch my meds. So there, there's that. But I've talked to other people who also felt like this week was kind of a slog. So, oh. But anyways, <laughs> here's one good thing. There's this game I love called Slime Rancher. And I've been so excited for the second one to come out. And it came out. So I lost uh, about eight hours already this week. That's Thursday and Saturday. And the thing is, is the game, it makes you happy because the music, lovely. The graphics, lovely. The whole point of it is that there are these little orbicular slimes in the wild and they all have a preferred diet and you feed them. And if you feed them what they want, they create these plorts and then you sell the plorts. And there's a whole plort economy based off of what slime you get. And there's new areas to explore and whatnot. And um, they're just so cute is the thing. Like there's bu- there's bunny slimes, kitty slimes, anglerfish slimes. I'll have to show you a picture. But slime ranchers, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> well, I love the name anyway, even though I don't play video games. And I can just sort of kind of picture what you're talking about. You'll like when you see a picture, you're gonna die in a good way. (laughs) I'm gonna kill you. I'm just kidding. In terms of the slog thing, like I called out sick on last Monday and I felt really guilty. Oh, and Tuesday because, (laughs) well, Monday was for me and Tuesday was also for me, but also because uh, my boyfriend came to town. So I was like, you know what? For us. For us. But then he came with me and saw me lecture on Wednesday and that was Aww. weird. <laughs> but it was he was definitely listening because like 
for the rest of the day, he kept, he kept referring back to the lecture. I'm just Aww. like, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> and we got petties and Aww. we had sushi. And Sounds it was lovely. Real, yeah, it was real nice. <laughs> that sounds oh, so sweet. Oh, and we went to Costco and bought a computer, and that was fun. That sounds like a great week. It really was. It was really nice. Yeah, and he is not a cat person, but he's trying to like bond with Rosie and everything, which is so adorable because he doesn't really know what he's doing. Oh, and she's so sweet that like she'll just take. Yeah, she'll take what she, what, can, what get. she can get. Yeah, <laughs> I feel like goes, you couldn't pick a better cat to bond with. He says to Rosie, you're something special. And I'm like, do you think so? And he goes, I don't like cats. <laughs> but she's good. She's a good one. I can can attest that is a great cat. I feel like she she is a cat that would be a good entry level. Like if you're an entry, if you're an entry level expert on cats. Rosie. Now, Branwyn, that's expert. Oh, that's that might like, be master level. That's like graduate school. That's yeah. like not, that's not. Phew. I've been studying for years. <laughs> <laughs> and I still learn new things every day. She's, she's a lot. But no, my colleague Nick said that he thought she should be a therapy cat, you know, that when they go into like hospitals and stuff. I could um, see that. She's a good egg. Let's get off the Rosie train because I, I mean, I'll just talk about her forever because I just think she's like a, she's like a saint. Little a cat, angel. Cat saint. She's yeah. like a lady vengeance cat. No. She's in no way related to she. <laughs> she's could like not find a cat least less like. <laughs> <laughs> the way people thought Gumja was. Yes, that is how. So is Rosie playing you? Oh, she's really the long game, game if she is, because we're going on like five years. Yeah, like <laughs> you're 13. She goes, I'm done. <laughs> Slap, like, shoot, leaves. Yeah. Would you like some greenies, some treats? She just like slaps it out of my hand. With a little kitty Why don't you go fuck walk. yourself? <laughs> 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 no, I also I don't think she's that smart. Do you know what I mean? She's got a different kind of intelligence. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. She could find a way into anybody's heart, but I do not know if she could find her way out of a prison. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Well, she doesn't know evil exists in this world either. I don't know. You know, she was a cat of the streets. So I feel like they saved her pretty quick, though. Yeah, I got her when she was like nine months old. She's like, been there. I'm good. Uh, but what else can I tell you? Went to the doctor. Oh, uh, you know, I went the other day and you know what they told me I got? What? Dumb bitch disease. <laughs> it's terminal. <laughs> they said I'll never recover. <laughs> Symptoms? Being a dumb bitch. <laughs> wow. They are very rude over there. They said it was in the DSM-6. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
<laughs> TBS dump itch syndrome. And there's just my photo going like. <laughs> Terrible. I say that joke all the time. It always kills. Oh, it's hilarious, but. Thank you. <laughs> I want to get back on my walking regime. It's getting I... cooler, so oh my you'll gosh. hate your life less. This oh yeah, this week was amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually cold. Uh, yeah, it's cold and chilly in the mornings, and it was still like in the seventies, but the humidity was like about half of what it was before. So oh man, yeah. So I've nice. been listening to back to listening to my Dennis Lehane books. What books uh, are those? Uh, mystery crime crime stuff, but mm. there's a whole series with. Did you ever see the movie Gone Baby Gone? No. Oh, okay. That's a uh, one of his. And I read these books at like at one point in my life, but I don't remember them. So yeah, those are great. I, yeah, I, I love it when that happens in a way. <laughs> yeah, kind of. And then what else? Well, I watched a little bit of the Jeffrey Dahmer, Ryan Murphy, mm. Ian Brennan joint. How was um, that? I, no, I couldn't hang with it. I I saw some stuff online about how families of the victims were like n- not happy that it was getting made and that it was like dredging up, you know, a lot of cuz I mean and honestly I didn't I didn't realize this cuz I the, the only thing I ever heard about Jeffrey Dahmer was what I think most people hear is just cannibal killed people. But I had no idea that he targeted so many like people of color and yeah. I so and knowing how skeezy ryan murphy is like all that combined i'm like dude come on like really yeah i've just heard that like specific families have been like this is not okay so i could could definitely see that i went to see that movie my friend dahmer Mm -hmm. a few years ago and so i get it and i don't need to see um what's his name evan peters a friend of mine is still watching it and she was like, he's really good. I'm like, yeah, but who cares? I don't need it in my life. I know the story. And yeah, Ryan Murphy. I don't know. When like, will like, he be stopped? <laughs> but I mean, some, sometimes I like what he like. I really like the OJ Simpson thing that he did. That was really fun. I did think that was great. But sometimes I'm just like, just stop. Yeah. Do something else. Take a break. Like literally anything else. <laughs> um, but when uh, Mr. Sue was here too, we went and saw the movie Barbarian. Which I hadn't even heard of that. All I had heard was it was good and that you should go in blind. And okay. th- that one of the YouTube guys I watched that I don't think you watched, Chris Stuckman, he he's like, I don't really want to say anything about it because I want you to go and see it. And um, hmm. But just know that it changes at one point. You think mm. you're watching one kind of movie and then it turns into something else. And I love those kind of movies. So I was like, okay, great. We went and um, he's not like a huge horror fan. Mm-hmm. And it was a real, all I'll say is it was a real kitchen sink situation. Oh, wow. Like, yeah. Everything. So it might, it might be fun to go back and look at like, you know, all the references or whatever, but I, um, <laughs> It wasn't great, you know, just because he's not like a fan. And but then we watched Prey. I had seen it before. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a more like I think anybody could probably watch that movie 
and enjoy it. And that was, that was, that was better. <laughs> I'm like, I swear to God, there are good horror movies. Yeah. <laughs> there are. There really are. And Here enough. are two of them. Yes. Why don't we get into it? Okay, so like mom said, we are doing a, a woman obsessed. And boy, is there a woman obsessed in our first movie, Misery, which is, let's see, when did that movie come out? I believe it came out in 1990. 1990. Yeah, and I'm not sure when the novel came out. That came out 1987. Wow, so yeah. it wasn't that long. So in preparation for this, I also reread the novel because it is I think my favorite Stephen King novel and the movie, which I don't remember what age I was when I watched it, but when we watched it for the first time when I was younger, I remember just being like, oh my God, I love this. And I think that was my introduction, at least to my sentient brain of Kathy Bates and what a great introduction that is. I legit um, am in love with her. She could, she can do no wrong in my eyes. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) So so I will be doing a little bit of comparing to the novel because if you like the movie, you need to read the book because if it if you can believe it, it's one million times better than the movie. And there's just a lot that he expounds upon that wasn't captured in the movie that um, ended up being my favorite things about the book. So here's a brief plot summary of the movie which is after a famous author is rescued from a car crash by a fan of his novels, he comes to realize that the care he is receiving is only the beginning of a nightmare of captivity and abuse. So it was directed by Rob Reiner, which King said that he would not let this be a movie unless Rob Reiner did it. The screenplay was by William Goldman and based off the novel Misery by Stephen King. It stars James Caan, Kathy Bates, Francis Sternhagen, Richard Farnsworth, Lauren Bacall, and uh, J.T. Walsh makes an uncredited cameo appearance as state trooper Sherman Douglas. And also, <laughs> Rob Ryder makes an uncredited appearance as the helicopter pilot. Hold right. on, just one second. So, you know, yeah. I like to see who's dead. So, obviously, R.I.P. James Kahn and Richard Farnsworth and Lauren Bacall. And I, I don't know about the rest of the people. But guess who is still alive? Who? Frances Sternhagen. She is the wife of the. Oh, I'm so glad. Yeah, me too. It was released November 30th, 1990, with a great runtime of 107 minutes. And mom watched it on Prime after buying it. And uh, I watched her copy. (laughs) We enter the movie, we see famous novelist Paul Sheldon, aka James Kahn. He's the author of a successful series of Victorian romance novels featuring a character named Misery Chastain, and the novels are his Misery series. But he wants to focus on more serious stories and begins to write a manuscript for a new novel that he hopes will launch his post-Misery career. And so he has actually, the, the last novel in the Misery series has been published, and he kills her at the end of the novel like he just wants to be done with it so he's 
traveling from Silver Creek, Colorado, where he stayed and, you know, you know how writers do staying in like a secluded retreat to write his novel. And he's going to go home to New York City. And this happens uh, already a bit differently in the in the book. He is so jazzed after finishing his new novel, Fast Cars, which is completely different from the Misery series. It has to do with a gritty, like, kid in the slums who uh, hot wires cars. And he's so excited that he drinks a bunch and goes out for a drive. Um, Even though they're like, hey, it's going to be kind of a tough storm. He's like, it'll be fine. So he gets into an accident because he does get caught in the blizzard, and he's rendered unconscious. And a nurse named Annie Wilkes finds him and brings him to life and gives him CPR. And in the novel, it's great because he already is beginning by being like, you know, this woman is like giving him CPR and blowing what he calls like rancid breath like into his mouth, like, and like, invading him you know already the language is very like she's just an unpleasant person so he regains consciousness and finds himself uh bedridden and he's got horribly broken legs and a dislocated shoulder we meet ms annie wilkes aka kathy bates who's dressed up in a very nice like uh you know she and I say this with love. Obviously, Kathy Bates is a lovely woman, but this is the way she's supposed to look, which I would say is homely or like frumpy, like a plain woman, you know, very solid like Kathy Bates is. And so she she's all smiles and very, very friendly, very maybe Northern Midwestern friendly, friendly being like, oh boy, like Mr. Paul Sheldon, I am so happy because I am your number one fan. And, you know, as soon as I saw who it was in that car, I knew I had to save him and talks at length about him and his novels. She's going on about how she, he's a genius. She loves him. And her favorite is the Misery series. So she says, you know what, I'll, I'll look after you um, because currently the phone lines are disconnected and none of the roads are open. But as soon as they are, I'll get you an ambulance. And this is already a bit different from the novel where she never offers that. <laughs> like <laughs> it, And I think that what makes that's the novel as a whole is just so much more unsettling. So she asks him like, well, you know, I saw in your in your with your things, uh, what looked to be a new manuscript. Do you mind if I read it? And he's like, yeah, that's fine. Usually I never let anybody read it, but it's okay. So she reads it and comes back and is so upset by the profanity. She says, you know, oh, well, the writing is good. Of course, of course you're a great writer, but the profanity, it's, it's horrible. And she goes into her first little moment where you know she's like do you think when i'm going to the store like i sell oh give me i have got like a bastard of a tire you know she's just like flying off the handle and james con does some great eye acting here where he just like is so like oh my god what the fuck so she you know but she's like you know i I'm sorry. Sometimes, you know, people say I, I always think I could have made more friends if it weren't for this temper. <laughs> She's just so good. That's the thing is, I saw this movie before I ever read Misery. And all you can imagine is Kathy Bates because she is this role. And even the person who did the audiobook was emulating Kathy Bates when reading it. 
she then reads the she goes oh well i went to the store picked up the newest misery novel and in the novel there is a great moment where paul realizes kind of like as she's reading it because you know she gives it comes in gives him little updates like wow like this is so exciting you know this might be the best one yet and in the novel there is a moment where paul laying in bed is realizing like oh my god like the ending what is going to happen with the ending and sure enough once she reads it she bursts into the room and comes at him in a rage you know saying like you killed her and he's like no you know i i didn't murder her you know people die and she's like no you're the author she's dead you killed her and she is so upset then she's like you know and you know what if you want to scream go ahead and scream because guess what nobody knows you're here i didn't call anybody <laughs> and that's our kind of oh shit moment now he is officially her prisoner she has a little time and something that i really wish was explored more in the movie is his addiction to the pain medicine that she gives him yeah the novels mentioned in the movie you know she's like oh here take this but it is it really becomes a thing that he genuinely needs in the novel and it's written so well because stephen king was suffering from substance abuse at the time and it feels real and it adds a whole new layer to his captivity in that he needs her in this way. You know, he doesn't want to anger her out of fear that not only is she going to hurt him, but she's not going to give him the the pills that he now has a physical dependency for. And almost he begins to see her as this like godlike figure because Mm -hmm. she has this power over him. And to me, this is important because Stephen King revealed two decades after Um, coming out with the novel Misery, that all of it has to do with his own battle with substance abuse. And and Annie, you know, represents the the addiction he had, um, you know, of her even being like, I'm your number one fan, you know, and I'll never let you go. Yeah, I'll never leave you. Yeah, I'll never leave you. You can never leave. And I, it's such a great part of the novel. And I just wish it was captured more in the movie. Because even... Paul Paul's so fine doesn't need the pills that he starts stockpiling them in a plan to drug her. That's the thing is the movie creates these scenes that were never in the novel and yet removes scenes that I thought were lovely. And and I know that's just a choice they have to make sometimes, but I don't know. You you get like this different vision once you read the novel because you're like, oh, what I thought was a you know a fine movie, I'm realizing like I could have been better, in my opinion. So Annie comes in with a little cooker and she's like, well, you know, got the good news and the bad news. Like good news is she's got a a gift for him, but bad news is he's got to do something for her. So she reveals in this little portable barbecue that there's his new manuscript and he immediately is like, no, come on. Like, I I don't want to do this. And Paul knows that this is the only manuscript in the world. He doesn't ever print another one um, whenever he's writing a new book. And Annie tells him, you know, well, you're going to have to burn this filth so we can, you know, get you started on what you're really good at. And she eventually, it, I, in the movie, he folds very quickly. But in the book, it's gut-wrenching. Like, he talks about how he wrote this for two years, 
He researched it. It was like his baby was really all he had cared about. And and it's so sad when he has to when his fear like overcomes him so much that he agrees to burn it. So he burns it and she's like, Well, here, now here's your present. She gets him a um <laughs> she gets him this typewriter that is broken. It is missing the N. But she's like, now you can begin writing a new novel, Misery's Return, and you are going to bring Misery back to life. And obviously, this is great irony because Paul, we've we've only heard him talk about how much he hates this series. And there's a great, I, I didn't realize this as much until I looked it up afterward, because he in the novel, he mentions becoming Shehrazad, and I didn't know what that was referring to. So I looked it up. And, you know, it's referring to a major female character and a storyteller in the Middle Eastern collection of tales known as the 1001 Nights. And in that story, Shehrazad kept telling this guy the story and then stopping um, so that he would have to keep her alive the next day so he could tell her more. So it's a great, it's a great icon for this where he now kind of begins to play this game of needing to continue to write something good enough that she also likes so that because that's the only thing he can have over her. He has nothing in this position. He's so vulnerable. But what he does have is the one book that's bringing misery back to life. I read the book a long time ago. I didn't reread it for this. But I mean, this is really a showcase for these two actors to to shine, especially Kathy, Kathy Bates. Yeah. And when, I mean, we're focused on Paul's face when he almost like over his shoulder, like throws the match that lights the manuscript on fire. And then she's like, heavens to Betsy, heavens to Betsy, because it's like, it's, it's a much bigger fire than she had expected. And she's just dealing with that. But I feel like she's, Obviously, we're sympathizing with Paul, and she's going to turn more and more into a villain as the movie goes on. Like, at this point, she's just sort of like a kook. Yeah. But, I mean, how did you feel about the way, I guess, the way she was presented in the movie? Hmm. Yeah, I I do feel as though, obviously, with time, like you said, you know, we get to see her really scary moments later on. But I do feel like there is a little bit, the the time in the novel with which she is presented as kooky Annie is so short. Like she, she gets into scary and scarier and scarier very quickly. Somebody, I was reading somebody else's um, review of the novel and they were saying that like time Time is both going by so slowly and so quickly in the in the novel that you know you feel also like very claustrophobic and you know imprisoned in this one space, and yet you do get to see how the time is just passing because he's there for a really long time in the novel, like maybe up to six months, maybe more. And I th- obviously I think Kathy Bates does such a good job with that, like you know. Heavens to Betsy, you know, like getting her her little, you know, vocal quirks and whatnot. But I do wish they could have 
used her scariness more because I do think Kathy Bates can get super scary. And the what I loved about Annie Wilkes, the character as described in the novel, was that she was described as being like a woman that was all mass in a way. Like there was no porous part of her. Like she was an immovable force. And he was terrified of her and also awestruck of her, you know, thinking of her as like this, like, like a fire and brimstone god. And I do not think this Paul Sheldon in this novel also feels that way towards her. I feel like throughout the whole thing, James Kahn is just kind of like, oh, this fucking freak, you know? And that almost, I feel like, affects how you feel because because yeah. he's the prisoner. So whatever he thinks, you know, is how going to be you feel. But he seems more. I wish the direction he had been given was more of like, you need to be like out of your mind afraid of this woman, you know? Right. He like he's, he seems contemptuous of her yes. and put upon, but he doesn't, I don't think he ever really feels that afraid. I mean, maybe we'll get to it. Maybe the scene where she has the gun, mm. but I feel like the way he, he reacts to her. Mm -hmm. is not the way King wrote her, which is fine. But yeah, she doesn't seem to be that scary until yes. almost to the very end. Yes. And because, that, uh, yeah, that that's a part of fear. That's why, like, I feel like a lot of Japanese movies do horror so well is because those, char those characters look scared out of their minds, you know? Yeah. And that makes you scared. But James Caan... I, I noticed it more so after reading the book. He just seems annoyed or like, I, I don't know. It's this attitude I feel like given towards women who you think are like dumb, I guess. Like this this kind of dumb, crazy lady. Whereas I feel like the 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 villain of Annie Wilkes deserves a – like her. she's a horrifying like individual. And they even show her crimes, but they don't – they don't let you percolate and really sit with with what she did as much as they did in the novel either. So yeah, Paul begins to stockpile his painkillers, and you know, they here's the scene that again was not in the book where he's like, you know, why don't we have a since I've started Misery's Return, like what? Why don't we have this little toast? And he tries to put all of the novel powder in her drink, and I, this just. I think this just especially gets me because legit there is a scene in the novel where Paul is, has, you know, has all this time to lay there and think about what he's going to do. And he legit thinks of this whole scenario and is like, well, I can't do that. Number one, they taste horrible and you'd be able to smell them. And maybe that would work in like a book or a movie, but it won't work here. So it just is so stupid that, that it does. Well, and it yeah. doesn't though. And I he mean, even, he even like tastes it and smells yeah. the yeah, and, powder. And it doesn't taste like, like that's not how drugs work also. <laughs> no drug is like that. Yeah. No drug is like, hmm, I literally taste nothing. And there's no um, chalky residue at the bottom of her wine glass. There's no sediment, you know. No. I, and so that's what I liked was in the novel. They were like, well, that's stupid. That, that would never work. Here's why it would never work. Okay. But having, I, I saw the movie before I read the novel and- um, I really did like this moment, but I yeah, think you I feel like it, there's so much hope. I I think I built it up in my mind um, as as like the Charlize Theron moment in Fury Road, mm, where yes. you know she's on her knees and it's just like no, 
because when I watched it this time, I'm like, oh, that sucks. But it it didn't have the same punch as it did the first time. So I don't think I'll I'll just say it right now. I don't think this is a great rewatch. Mm, but a first watch. A first watch, I think it gets you. Yes. But when, once you know the beats, I'm not really sure it's something you want to go back to. I, I think I would completely agree because I think I feel the same way is I watched it and then in my mind, it, I had so much reverence for it. And then I read the book and was like, whoa, the book's amazing. And then I watched it again and was like, oh, okay. The stuff that I liked, I still like, but there's more stuff I don't like that I notice. And so, yeah, he tries to poison Annie, but she knocks over her glass. And we have no idea if that's on purpose or or anything like that. And again, that because in the book, there's so many times that he he tries things and she's legitimately too smart. Like she's too smart, too cunning for him to get. And he's constantly underestimating her. And we get these more unfurling layers where she'll also reveal more of what she's thinking and what she noticed and how she thinks of these things. And again, she's, she's terrifying, you know, because here's a woman who we then learn because Paul escapes you know, while she's out and about, he uses a bobby pin to get out of his, because uh, now he can go into a wheelchair and finds, um, which she just has in her living room, by the way, not, would never happen. I don't remember where it is in the, in the book, but it's, it's not there, but it's called Memory Lane and he flips through it and it's basically her record of her crimes. And because she, she makes, she had made a comment at one point, you know, like, and when they made me get on the stand in Denver, like, so he has this idea of like, okay, there's been something up. So he's flipping through the newspaper clippings. Again, in the novel, this is so detailed. I get why they can't do that in the movie, but maybe a mini series, they could have had a whole episode dedicated to this. She's been sneakily killing people her whole life and has always gotten away with it. Her stepdad or something she she put like a pile of clothes on the stairs and he tripped down and died her roommate she basically gets also her to trip down the stairs fall out of a window and die then she uh gets hired as a nurse there's tons of people that die under her care that she's kept the paul realizes oh these are the obituaries then she gets moved to working in the ICU, it's particularly the NICU with uh, babies. And that's really when people start paying attention because obviously their baby's dying. She gets investigated for these crimes and the local papers call her the dragon lady. And you know, there's pictures of her being hauled away, but there's no conclusive proof to put her away. So she gets set free. And in the novel, there's an additional killing of a hiker that was washed up in like a, a water bank, like miles and miles away. So I, that to me is the terrifying thing is imagine if you were this person's captor and not only are you like, oh, she is totally fine with killing me, but you don't even have the idea that maybe somebody will find out, you know, like, I feel like that's got to be so defeating. But this guy has like a certainty of like, oh, she's going to cover this up. Nobody will ever know. Um, I'm going to die here. And I just think that's, again, that's that's why the book, that's why people describe this book as being so unsettling is that you, 
the situation gets more and more hopeless. Even with his little victories, she gets him like 10 steps back. Um, and knowing that King thought of that that character as as the drugs he was addicted to gives it that other layer too, because when you're deep in addiction, you know, you do, I, you do have that feeling. Well, I can speak for myself. I had that feeling that I was going to die if I didn't stop drinking. That's, that's what's really, ter- it's like you, your, your opponent is so much more powerful and so much more like they know you better than, then you know them, like you can't figure them out and, and they've got all this on you. And yeah, it's, it's very, it, now I want to read the book. Cause I mean, that, that, that makes a whole lot more sense. Yeah. You know, the feeling of feeling trapped and like, yeah. one of the letterbox reviews that I don't think I, I included is something like trigger warning for, for like abusive relationships. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, this is a terribly abusive relationship just as being an addict is a, you know, being involved yeah. in an abusive relationship with somebody who's trying to kill you. I think that's a great point. And so during the trial, apparently, Annie had quoted lines from the misery novels. Again, I think this is just better in the book. They sh- what what Paul finds is a picture of Annie in her cell reading a misery novel. <laughs> and that's like, because everybody was so interested in this dragon lady, because I mean, killing babies is a huge, you know, thing people get upset about. And another thing was, it's not as if she got out and people were like, oh, well, it couldn't have been her. Like the, the thing was, is the vibe was that everybody was like, this lady did it but they had no, no way to prove it. And the jury had said, you know, we can't, we can't, there's not enough evidence for me to conclusively say she did this. And Annie brings that up in the novel of like, you know, her neighbors hate her. They're all out to get her. Everybody in life is out to get her. I just, I, I love her character. Cause I also just think that, I don't know, like not obviously would never kill anybody, but the way she's paranoid of everybody and therefore makes an enemy out of everybody is such a scary and relatable thing, like a thing that I always hope I I never do. And her world is just, is also scary. Like this character is also very upsetting. Yeah, I could go on. So Annie discovers that Paul has been sneaking out of the room because she finds the bobby pin. And so she says, you know, I'm going to have to do to you what, you know, they used to do to, to people who worked in, in the mines. Um, yeah. I don't know if she's talking about Cape town diamond mines. I can't, I don't know, but I, I don't think- remember exactly, but she very specifically in the novel mentioned that it was like the native workers. So that was okay. another part, like, you know, indentured like labor. Well, I mean, I think, I think it also happened with enslaved Africans mm. in, in this country. Yeah. Makes, yeah. I, I was, it was like, why didn't she say that? Like that. I think like, the movie was trying to Hollywood. I feel like is sometimes like, ah, let's not go there. And so she's like, you know, they had to hobble them so that they wouldn't be able to escape. So that's what I'm going to do to you now. And this is different from the novel, but I will say, I think this is pretty effective in the novel, she cuts one of his feet off, and sure, that is very scary, but 
I feel like this scene's iconic, and I think they yeah. did a great job they, without making it t- what how how gory it would have been with cutting somebody's foot off. But so she puts a board between his two ankles, and the and the way it's shot is amazing too because it it kind of follows her arm with the mallet as she then hits his foot and it you know breaks because it's attached to this block she does it to both feet and you only see the first one the second one is off screen you just see his face of pain and i do think that this scene is worth the price of admission i just think it's so it just goes to the next level where you're like oh (laughs) fuck this lady and and he's almost recovered at this point too yes yeah, so, he's able to be in the wheelchair. Like yeah. he's been practicing, like you know, lifting, and and she's just brought him back to yeah, right back to zero. Yeah, um, or or less than zero. And and he, they're both great in this scene because he's obviously like whatever you're thinking about doing, please don't do yeah, it. You know, yeah. And she is like, she's gonna do it. Yeah, like, yeah. There's and, no hesitation. And after the second one, she goes. I love you so, or oh, how I love you, or something like that. And it's like, oh my fucking god! Yeah, like you're fucked, this lady. Oh no! It's yeah. just like, oh man, and so good. I saw this in the theater when it came out with my friend Sean. Your brother was a baby, and um, this was like a Christmas movie. <laughs> 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 it's out on Christmas, I think. And yeah, I, I remember that. And I was like, holy. It's incredible. That's <gasps> really good. Uh, like art, honestly. Subject matter, obviously bad, but art, amazing. In the book, this is like a, a turning point for Paul. He had been very driven. There was still a lot of motivation in him, but he does, and, and in his own words, get cowed by this because he begins to think like, I don't fear death but I just don't want her to hurt me anymore. Like I can't take it. And he throws himself into writing the book. And what's really interesting is he actually begins to really enjoy writing the book. Whereas I I feel like, again, in the movie, they don't really touch on this as much. In the book, you know, he first just tries to cop out bringing Misery back by just basically like retconning his last ending. But Annie's like, no, you can't do that because she was buried at the end of it. You know, she's got all the facts in her head and she's like, and she recites this time that when she was younger, she used to see these chapter plays with her brother. And again, I think Kathy Bates kills this scene. It felt just like how I read it in the novel where she's saying that, you know, there were always these, always these cliffhangers. Well, well, actually she says, you know, they leave a surprise and Paul goes, a cliffhanger. She's like, yeah, I know what those are. Um, (laughs) There's a you could totally make the comparison to like an abusive relationship because he has to mind his tone around her. Yes. Like there are things that he never could have imagined she would take as you're an idiot that yeah. she does. And that's so real and scary. Like yes. when you have no idea what you're dealing with. Oh my god, um, that's such a good point. Yeah. yeah. And because yeah. There's so many things like that where he was just trying to correct her and she's like, so you think I'm an idiot? You know, like there's this whole point in the book where he's afraid she's going to hurt him again because he called it a cliffhanger. She says that, you know, there was one where the the hero jumped out of the plane and didn't have his his parachute. And she wondered the whole week, like, well, how is he going to get out of it? And when it 
when the show came back, it's just, well, he had his parachute actually. And she said that she stopped and started yelling in the middle of the theater. She's like, cause everybody else was so stupid and was clapping and was happy. I wasn't because that's not what happened last week. And that's what I just kept saying is that's not what happened. That's not what happened. And Kathy Bates is just, again, it's just this moment where you're like, oh, holy shit. Like, uh, <laughs> this is scary. <laughs> but you, but what I love is that Paul, as a writer, understands what she's talking about. And he actually feels in a really weird, twisted way, like grateful to her because he's like, she's not going to let me get away with that. I actually have to think of something. And he does. And he, he makes the, it's interesting because obviously Stephen King must also be writing about being a popular novelist himself. But, you know, he kind of shifts from this who he had labeled as, you know, constant reader, changing that voice from being like just you know, never happy with what he's doing or, or kind of like a parasite in a way, how, how he feels about them to this person who really is reading and taking everything I say and like, like gets it and wants me to be better. I don't know. It's, it's fascinating. Now I'm thinking about this in terms of like an actual, like abusive relationship and it's so twisted. Like scary. He's, he, he knows what he's talking about. Yeah. Ugh. <laughs> so disturbing. It's twisted. And that, again, it's like the movie's great, but I think it does not get into the meat of why this is such a dark and twisted story and why it's so scary. So yeah, Paul Paul has now been hobbled. And we we get into this whole character who's, I think it's a sweet little character. They have sweet little moments, but again, not in the book. So me now wa- now watching the movie with my I want this to be like the book eyes. I'm like, get this guy out of here. <laughs> but he's cute. I yeah. do I do think this this character's great. Because the local sheriff Buster starts really looking into it because Paul's publisher, because they have this whole thing to make it make sense why he's looking for him, which is that oh Paul always comes here to to finish his novels. Oh, he's been doing it forever. So it makes sense why he was here. Whereas in the book, he's just, just happened to go here, which makes it all the harder to find him. So he eventually tracks down some clues and he decides to pay Annie a visit. She sees him coming and hauls Paul off to the cellar and drugs him. And so Buster comes in and, you know, is Annie's already got her whole story. She's, She's like, you know, I, yeah, I do know who that, she, you know, she's like, I know who that man is. He's, he's my favorite writer in the whole world. Look, I have all of his books. Um, I know that I know why he was around here because, you know, I heard he likes to, you know, write, you know, she's, she's got her whole story planned out. You know, he's just asking her questions here or there. We can see he's a little bit kind of like, like he knows who she is, but it's, it's not enough. So he, he then leaves. But then he hears a noise because Paul drops something or moves something. And he comes back into the house and is like, you know, Annie, are you okay? Paul starts shouting, it's me. I'm in here. I'm in here. And he turns to look down the cellar where Paul's laid laid out. And Annie shoots him from behind. And all hope is lost. (laughs) 
it's just such another sad moment because the character is really cute. You know, we got to see him be cute with his wife and stuff. We don't want to see him die. So she then decides she's like, I'm going to kill you and then myself. But Paul, who has stolen a can of lighter fluid from the cellar, says, you know, like, let me let me keep going because I want to finish the book and give misery back to the world. <laughs> In the novel, this is like a given. Like she's like, and the 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 cop getting killed scene is so much more brutal. And again, I'm just thinking now makes it make so much sense as an abusive relationship because a cop comes to to see him. Paul sees him through the window, breaks the window, and is like, "Help me! Help me!" Annie picks up a cross from the ground that she's used to mark the grave of one of her dead pigs and stabs the guy to death and then runs over his head with a lawnmower and then continues to say, you know, I didn't kill him. You killed him. That guy could be sitting home eating with his family right now if you hadn't said anything. Just so then now Paul has to think, you know, do I want to get somebody else involved? And he's trying to tell himself that, no, I didn't do it. She did it. But obviously, he can't stop thinking of the trooper. Okay. Anyways, the manuscript gets finished. Paul asks for a cigarette and some champagne, what he always does after he finishes a novel, and Annie goes to grab it. So then he pours fluid on the manuscript and sets it on fire. Annie rushes to save it, and Paul strikes her with a typewriter. So they begin to engage in a really violent struggle. Annie shoots him in the shoulder. He trips her and she hits her head on the typewriter and he begins to crawl out of the room. Annie attacks him again. Paul grabs a metal doorstop and bashes her her in the face and kills her. So now we see Paul 18 months later. He walks with a cane. He goes to meet his agent, Marsha, in a restaurant in New York City. They're discussing his first post-misery novel and Marsha's just telling him, like, hey, I already got news. The New York Times is going to love it. And, you know, he replies, you know, I, I wrote it for myself to deal with the horrors of my captivity. And she's like, well, would you ever consider doing a nonfiction book about it? You know, I'm sure you, it would sell like hotcakes. And but Paul is currently still suffering from the psychological trauma because we can see that the the waitress approaching him with like the champagne he sees as Annie and she you know then tells Paul you know I just got to say I am your number one fan and he goes that's very sweet of you and then the film ends <laughs> somewhat similar to the 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 original ending I like it I like this movie everything I said before is how I feel about it. I now see it more as like a music video and more so a Kathy Bates tribute. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's what it is to me. So Stephen King apparently was so impressed with Kathy Bates' performance in this film that he wrote two more roles for her. So the title role in his, like to to write this novel, like I'm going to write a whole novel first with her in mind. Dolores Claiborne, which is also very good. I have read that specifically because I knew he wrote it with Bates in mind. So then she starred in a film adaptation of it. And he also wrote the script for the TV miniseries, The Stand from 1994. And 
instead of the original character, uh, Ray Flowers, who is male, because he heard Bates wanted to be involved, he was like, okay, fine. She's Ray Flowers. So Kathy could play the part. Apparently, James Kahn and Kathy Bates clashed over their acting methods, which I find very interesting. Kahn apparently believed in as little rehearsal as possible. And Bates, being from a theater background, was used to practicing a lot. So she commented that to Rob Reiner, that Khan was not attempting to relate or listen to her. And Reiner was like, we'll use that frustration towards your character. So maybe some of that was was real hatred. <laughs> yeah, maybe there was a bit of contempt or, or, you know, misogyny going on. I don't know. I don't want to say anything about James Khan. I really don't know anything about him. But <laughs> um, that is a little bit weird. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you're like the two main characters, like in a movie, I'm, I think you should rehearse. You should. Well, I'll, yeah, just figure something out. I mean, yeah. even if you have different like, you know, that that one guy on Succession, apparently he's like super method and like nobody else is. Wait, um, which one? Uh, uh, Jeremy Strong. Um, Kendall. Oh, God. Kendall Roy being a method actor. That's <laughs> fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> well, he that that actor Jeremy Strong is like like you know really method I guess, but like Brian Cox is like I don't get it like yeah just fucking act like go to the set and act like what but you know people have different ways of doing things but in that case it's like the whole ensemble but if you're like just one other actor like come it- on you can't spend a little bit of extra time because the other the whole world thought she did great. Because in 1991, Kathy Bates became the first woman to win an Oscar for Best Actress in a Horror or Thriller Film, and she deserved it. The first performer to win an Oscar for a horror film was Frederick March for his performance as the title character in Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde from 1931. The only other winners for acting in a horror film were Ruth Gordon for her performance as Mia Farrow's new neighbor with a hidden agenda in Rosemary's Baby, which was Best Actress in a Supporting Role. And as well as Anthony Hopkins and Jodie Foster for Best Actor and Best Actress in Silence of the Lambs from 91. And Natalie Portman for Best Actress. What? (laughs) Natalie Portman got an Oscar for Black Swan. That's embarrassing. (laughs) That's embarrassing for all of 2010. What? Go back and um, listen to our show on Black Swan (laughs) and Perfect Blue. Uh, to hear some um, why <laughs> I need if if I look at who the other like nominees were I'll probably get mad unless Natalie Portman was the best out of those but maybe the only other movies I, just that's weird <laughs> there's no up. way look it up on your clackety clack machine all right best actress Oscars what or was nom- that nominees 2010 um, nominees 2010 best actress wait this is saying that sandra bullock won natalie portman oscar yet yet jeff bridges gave her the oscar for best actress in black swan in 2011 Ah. oh 2011 2011 oscars actress nominees okay 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 Actress in a leading role. Okay. The winner, Natalie Portman for Black Swan. Nominees, Annette Bening from The Kids Are All Right. Nicole Kidman 
from Rabbit Hole, Jennifer Lawrence from Winter's Bone, and Michelle Williams from Blue Valentine. Okay. The last two. I didn't see Michelle Williams, but I can I can just bet that was a good performance. But I did see Jennifer Lawrence in Winter's Bone before she was, you know, Jen- J-Law. Yeah. And that was a fucking amazing performance. I can't speak. Uh, obviously, Nicole Kidman did not deserve it. Oh, so that, that was fine. I was um, listening <laughs> to a podcast today. These guys are really fun. They're called the vulgar auteurs. And they'll take like the whole filmography of somebody and just like week by oh, week go through the films. Yeah. That's interesting. So they had gone, they had done Vengeance, Lady Vengeance, and also Old Boy and also... Um, and they did Stoker and K- Kidman is in Stoker. And this guy kept like extolling her virtues as an actress. And I was like, I, I disagree. You I, have been bamboozled, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> like compare her to, to like other good female actresses, other good male actors, like anyone, like <laughs> she's not that great. I don't like I think most people could do a role better than she could and I don't think she could do other roles that other actresses can do. Carrie Mulligan. Oh my god. She's like We love her. We love her. Even though she made that movie. <laughs> Listen. Hey. I support women's rights and women's wrongs. <laughs> <laughs> So that car accident scene, it was captured with a setup involving nine cameras, six or seven of which actually functioned. And they said, we knew we weren't going to be able to throw a car off a cliff too many times. That's a pretty good shot. I mean, it's pretty good. It's scary. Yeah. Annie displays traits associated with an array of mental illnesses, at the very least, bipolar disorder, obsessive compulsive disorder, Munchausen syndrome by proxy, a severe personality disorder with paranoid antisocial and borderline features, and likely some sort of schizophrenic or schizoaffective spectrum disorder. And a special feature on the Collector's Edition DVD, a forensic psychologist described Annie as a virtual catalog of mental illness. Mm -hmm. That is also what they called me in high school. (laughs) (laughs) like what it says in your yearbook (laughs) can you imagine Uh, (laughs) Uh, during the film Annie says oh Paul 12 times Uh, gotta get that, that highlight reel After seeing the notorious scene where his character gets his ankles broken at a screening, James Conn turned to Rob Reiner and said, you're a sick fuck. (laughs) Should be saying that to, I mean, I guess Rob Reiner did think of it. If it was him who thought of the hobbling Mm. that way. James Conn's fake legs were molded out of gelatin. Armatures with wire were inserted into the prosthetic ankles so that after Annie hit them with the sledgehammer, they would bend at the desired gruesome angles. They were whole so that Khan could slip his real legs up to the knee. All right, mom, do you want to talk about yeah. what phobia is that? <laughs> well, of course, claustrophobia is the fear of confined spaces. And clythrophobia is a fear of being trapped. So the difference is that with claustrophobia, it's a fear of a place, like an elevator 
or something like that. Whereas clythrophobia is a fear of a situation. I think I have that. I, that I, that's what I think I have. I think I like it makes like if it's a phobia when it starts affecting your life. Yeah, I must have it then. <laughs> it affects my decisions. I'm also agoraphobic, so like I I can't do anything. That's a, that's a that's a joke. It's not totally true, but I don't like crowds. And then I don't know. I just said swinophobia, fear of fear of pigs. I mean, the the imagery of like you know people like tossing like a body into like a pig pen that is yeah. disgusting. That's horrible. Yeah. How would you rate it? Well, in terms of sledgehammers, I think I would give it three sledgehammers and like just the top part of the sledgehammer. So three and a half. (laughs) (laughs) I think I'll give it three and a half too. Maybe (laughs) 3.75. I think Kathy Bates is much like, uh, what was that other, the, the remake of that one black and white movie that Kathy Bates was in. Oh yeah. Diabolique. Yes. Much like how she was maybe the only shining part. Um, I don't think she's the only shining part in this movie, but she shines pretty bright. And I, with all of its faults, you got to watch it for her. I mean, I really, yeah, I don't, I don't th- I think if anyone else had been cast in the role, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be as good. So, yeah, I definitely agree. I mean, I think James Caan does a good job. You're right. A lot of eye acting. Yeah. And, and um, yeah, I like the little little story there with the sheriff and his wife. And Yeah, they're cute. Yeah, it's fine. I feel a little bit like Hollywood thinks we're all very stupid. Oh, for sure. And this movie is one of those, uh, what I would put as like maybe exhibit C. <laughs> <laughs> what have we learned? Well, don't drink and drive, for one thing. I mean... Or hey, if you're in, in the movie, just don't drive in a, yeah, in a snowstorm. Yeah, maybe if there's snow, just don't drive. Maybe. Uh, would you watch it again? Yeah. Not, not for a while. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Who wins the You Fool Award? <laughs> um... I'm going to say Buster. I was going to say, yeah, I was going to say Buster. Yeah, like shouldn't have. Uh, At least he could have told his wife. I'm going here. I'm going over to Annie Wilkes' house. Yeah. At the very least. Yes. Um, But he probably should have taken somebody with him. Backup, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Fool. Fool. (laughs) Well, what does Letterboxd have to say about it? Theodore gave it half a star and said, well, this is a misery to watch. Sure, it's probably great if you haven't read the book, but like this doesn't even come close to capturing the sheer horror and tension the book had. Misery is an absolutely terrifying book, and this movie just failed with everything that made it so scary. S gave it one star, said, I don't know if it's because I've seen it parodied, referenced so often, or if the existence of Stan culture makes Annie seem kind of tame for most of this, but I was bored. So bored. I would happily watch the sheriff and his deputy wife investigate a much nicer crime in their snowy town, though. (laughs) (laughs) That's cute. Chogan gave it one and a half stars and said, this is one of the worst adaptations I've ever seen. I recently read the book and this downright butchers it. 
I'm not really mad that they changed things, but rather that what they changed had no consequences. If they would have gotten a more unique slash stylish director, this would have been a hit. This needs a redo. And I guess I would go with your recommendation of a miniseries. Yeah. I think a miniseries would be awesome. Like, that's what all book adaptations should Eric Harris gave it five stars, said Kathy Bates is, of course, sublime. But James Kahn really doesn't get enough credit for his truly remarkable physical performance, confident enough to underplay every moment and allow his face to do the heavy lifting, graciously giving Bates the room she needs to go full cock-a-duty. You can see in his eyes exactly what he's thinking at any given moment, even during the long stretches where he doesn't say anything at all. I also just adore the mini Thin Man movie with Richard Farnsworth and Francis Sternhagen that they managed to sneak in there. Mm-hmm. Um, Juicy Coochie gave it five stars and said, I'm Kathy Bates, number one fan. <laughs> Natalie gave it five stars and said, Annie Wilkes's cottage core realness. Oh, that, that, that interior design is <laughs> everything. Oh, okay. I think I'm going to give it 3.75 then. Yes, it is. Yes. It is something to behold. They did a great job. That little ceramic penguin. Mm. Apple Jacks 104 gave it <laughs> five stars, <laughs> said Eric made me watch it. Thrilling movie that reminded me of my mom. <laughs> oh, that's not good. <laughs> the implications of that sentence. Oh, go, God. <laughs> oh, yeah, you know the movie Misery. <laughs> Reminds me of my mom. <laughs> she was also a crazy bitch. Are you ready? Yeah. Lady Vengeance slash Sympathy for Lady Vengeance slash I forgot what the Korean is, but anyway, it translates to kind hearted gumja. The brief plot summary from IMDb says, after being wrongfully imprisoned for 13 years and having her child taken away from her, a woman seeks revenge through increasingly brutal means. Which is somewhat, it's somewhat accurate. Okay, it's Chinjulhan Gumjashi. Directed by Park Chanuk, written by Jung Sukyong, who also wrote The Handmaiden and Thirst, and Park Chanuk. Stars E Young A, Chui Min Shik, Kim Sihu, and Old Dasu. <laughs> hardly, but I don't know why he's credited fourth, but okay. It came out on the 29th of July, 2005, and has a running time of 115 minutes, and I watched it on Canopy. I watched it on a totally legal site. Okay, great. Mm-hmm. So, okay, so the plot of this movie is there's not a lot of plot to this movie. What the, what really makes the movie worth watching is how he plays around with time, how he plays around with images, and really the underlying themes of revenge, forgiveness, and redemption. So I'll go through the plot, but it's really not, the story's not the point. But it when, definitely, I will say, I think the benefit of knowing the plot when watching it is actually like a lot. Like, I feel like yeah, watching it for true. the first time was amazing. So I'm not saying you shouldn't watch it, I guess, somewhat blind. But 
then when I knew exactly what was going on, I was able to love and appreciate the buckwild imagery that's in there that you can't as much fully appreciate because you're like, what the fuck's happening? Yeah, that's true. So if you haven't seen this movie yet, Wohos, um, hopefully this will help. I'm going to spoil the fuck out of it, but knowing maybe what it's about uh, might, it might help because otherwise you probably will have to watch it two or three times. Anyway, it's basically about a girl who becomes pregnant when she's a teenager. She can't, she can't go home to her mother or her father. So she asks a man named uh, Mr. Beck, Mr. Back, I think is how you pronounce it, to take her in. He's a, a teacher or he was like a student teacher at her school. So he does. <laughs> But uh, it turns out that he he wants her to help him kidnap a child. He doesn't tell her that. He 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 enlists her help. She has no idea what it's for, and it ends up being that he kills the kid. So she feels incredibly guilty, and he tells her that if she doesn't confess to the murder, he'll murder her baby as well. So she does confess to the murder and she's put away for 13 years and he puts her baby up for adoption and her baby's adopted out to a very nice couple in Australia. When she's in prison, she takes on this personality of kind-hearted gumja and she does all these favors for people, including like donating her kidney to somebody. I mean, these really, you know, incredible favors that she does for people. And everyone loves her. And she's released early because she, quote unquote, converts to Christianity. And she's such a model prisoner that she is released early. But <laughs> that's all a, a facade because for 13 for the whole of her imprisonment she's been she's been scheming on how to get revenge against this man who killed this child and who also adopted out her her own her own daughter that's the plot and then there's a then there's a added layer a little bit later we open with <laughs> Some of the images are just like so insane. And this is one of them. There are all these people who are singing songs, uh, singing like a, a, a Christmas song. And they're all dressed up in Santa Claus suits and um, to welcome Gumja out after her 13 years. And she's offered a square of tofu, which is a traditional, I guess, thing. Tofu's white. And so it's you know supposed to symbolize a, a new fresh start or something like that. And she <laughs> knocks it to the ground and the priest who has been like so taken with her transformation from child killer to saint, you know, is absolutely appalled. And the close up on his face is just amazing. I think what is so great is that constantly we're introduced to other people's views of the situation. Like you go into their whole like psyche. So like we see this man like the first time he sees her 
and he's like, I must save that woman, you know? <laughs> and 13 years later, like here he is. And I, and they, they constantly do that with people who knew Gyumja like uh, before her release of we're going into why they're in prison, how she helped them. It's like, it, I don't know. It, it's so good. Yeah. Yeah. It's really, it is really fun. We, we made several other released inmates who Gum, Gumja helped in prison. So upon her release, she calls in the favors. She had taken care of a prisoner who had Alzheimer's and nobody else wanted to deal with. As I mentioned, she had given a fellow prisoner a kidney. She actually killed a very predatory woman who forced others to pleasure her and was also just like Detestable. an abusive, horrible person. Tripped everybody when they, <laughs> when they came to prison. Well, like one, she goes... I've got a great job for you. And the job is to fan mosquitoes off of her while she sleeps. And, and she because- kicks her, like kicks the shit out of her when a mosquito get like, God, I'm just, again, thinking about how amazing Park Chanuk is of a director. Like, like she's fanning her. We see a close up of the mosquito, like drink her blood. And then the next scene is her kicking the shit like out of the woman, like saying like, do you want to know why it hurts to have like a mosquito bite on the bottom of your foot? And what's also great about that is she's beating her like around the room and the other women in the room are like, they don't want to look, but they look and they, but they edge away. And it's just, they're so afraid. this, This woman just is in complete control of this block of women. And it's, it's bad. The witch. When she gets off, when she gets out of prison, she goes to the parents of the child, Wanmo, and she cuts off her pinky, a la, what was that movie? The Japanese movie? Which one? You know, the Yakuza one. Oh, Ichi the Killer. Yeah, (laughs) a la Ichi the Killer. And then we have a dream sequence where she's pulling Mr. Back on a sled. And he's, this is such a cool like he's like a dog but he's also a man and he's just like completely tied to the sled and then she shoots him in the head and in the dream and his tail is still wagging and that when we, she wakes up she's smiling it just like gives her so much <laughs> i love it it's really nice so she goes to the naruse bakery and we meet old 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 alsu and she, we also meet the boy she's going to, well, he's 19. Okay. The young man she's going to have an affair with, Jun Shik. <laughs> it's so funny because she just like <laughs> has sex with this guy once and he he's like vowed to like and anything she does, he'll, he'll follow her. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Amazing. <laughs> but it's like, that's how everybody is. And like, I understand, like when you also, when you see Gyumja, you're like, I got you, buddy. Yeah, I got yeah. So for that scene, Junshik has like a whole bunch of stuff in his arms and he's he can't see her. But then when he, he gazes upon her, he drops everything. And old Alsu is like, I told you she was pretty. <laughs> but she's like beyond she's gorgeous. She meets with the former detective, and we get a flashback to when she confessed to the crime. He knew that she was innocent. But he coached her through the reenactment. And also Mr. Back was there with her baby to make sure that she confessed. But she's so vigorous with the recreation, which involves 
putting a pillow over the child's face to suffocate him. That the head of the mannequin falls off. (laughs) (laughs) And I just got like, I saw the devil vibes, you know, because there's that one shot in the beginning where somebody trips and the head of the victim like falls out of the box. Yes. Oh, yes. Because, yeah, because everybody, like, the whole, it's packed with, like, reporters and, like, also the family. And it's just, oh! <laughs> like, <laughs> despair. She tracks down the information on her baby and finds out that the girl Jenny was adopted out to a couple in Australia. But the way she finds this out is she she breaks into this building. Um, <laughs> I forgot about this. 13th floor or something and she just like busts into this place and she finds the file yeah she is determined this one she oh yeah so um gun chick is saying well okay so so you made a mistake when you were younger you know i mean that's just what it is to be alive you know you make mistakes and then you say you're never gonna do it again and she goes oh i'm planning to kill again (laughs) But she goes to Australia and Jenny is looking up at the sky and, and, and the, the clouds spell out, you have no mother in English. <laughs> and then um, when Gumja drives up, um, Jenny looks back up at the sky and the no appears. <laughs> so that was a really nice you little have thing. mother. <laughs> <laughs> There's this whole bit about, well, I don't know. We can't really go into all the costuming, but when she went into prison, she was wearing a polka dot dress and it became like this huge sensation. Like everybody in the country started wearing polka dots. But when she comes to Australia, she's wearing the polka dot dress and we'll see her costuming, like revealing more of her personality later. But Jenny demands that Gumja take her back to Seoul and... Um, she does. I mean, like the girl's like holding a knife to her own throat. <laughs> I love it because then Gumja's like on the ground, like yes. like looks so sad, and the family is just like, what? Because <laughs> the mom also Gumja was also partying with the family like earlier, like really endeared herself to them. <laughs> so she gets a gun. It's a handmade gun from the husband of one of the former inmates and she's told that, and that's a weird shot when he demonstrates the gun and he has a tattoo of like gradually uh, like three or four guns that get bigger and bigger in size as they go down his arm. (laughs) And then the gun that he's holding. (laughs) So he tells her that he has got to get up. She's got to get up really close. Like if she can hear his heart beating great, if he can, if she can see the sweat on his face, even better. Gumja and Jenny are sleeping in the bed and the ghost of Wonmo appears to Jenny. And there's a voiceover that says that if Gumja would have known that she would have been really sad, but Jenny just says, do you speak any English? (laughs) And the boy just is like, no. (laughs) So it's like big moment. It was like nothing because <laughs> Jenny doesn't care and yeah. Gumja is asleep. 
But I do think it does show that one mole when he was six, when he was killed, he was like completely innocent. Yeah. And so I think maybe that's why Jenny can see him. I'm sorry. We have the scenes with the dog, which I skipped over the second time I watched it, but they get a dog from a market and they go on a picnic. Um, Gunshik and Gumcha and Jenny and the puppy. And well, (laughs) Gumcha shoots the dog. (laughs) It's so, yeah. And it's, they, they go to the, they go to this abandoned school. Then we have the scene with Mr. Back and his wife and I timed it. It goes from, 52.12 to 54.30. Now it does involve them eating dinner in silence, but then he just puts his food down, goes around to behind her and fucks her and fucks her so much that he like moves the table across uh, the floor and she's like trying to get the dishes, make sure the dishes don't fall down. And then she's saying... I'm I want to go out with my friends tonight. Do you think that would be okay <laughs> as all of this is happening? And then when he's done, he just goes back and sits down and continues eating. It's so unsettling. It's not good. Yeah, it's horrible. And it turns out that the, his wife is a plant. That Gumjaw set that up too. It's amazing. There's uh, the killing of the abusive uh, prisoner and the belch. Okay, so this is so great. So we see that Gumja is wearing yellow, which I guess means that she's a she's a good prisoner. So everybody else is in blue, I think. Mm-hmm. But so she's going to take care of this really abusive prisoner, and she's the prisoner, the lady. I don't remember her name. I think she was the witch. Before Gumjaw was the witch, right? Yeah, yeah, because she had found her husband and his lover, and she killed them, and then she ate them. So crazy. That's such a cool flashback, because she's like... (laughs) It's amazing. She's like grilling this meat, and then we just see all these cops, like, converge on the house. And she's, like, like decked out in makeup, and, like, she looks amazing. Um But in the hospital, her hair is falling out and she's like, I don't understand it. You know, I used to have a really strong stomach, but now, and, you know, Gamja is like, oh, it's fine. You know, I just love taking care of you. And um, she's feeding her this food and she has something she keeps squirting on the food. And we come to find out that it's bleach. So... So the the witch says, "You really are kind-hearted." That's a that's a, a phrase that comes up over and over. And Gumjaa says, "Just take lots of food and medicine, and hurry up and die," <laughs> because at that point she's fallen over. But there is one moment before that where she belches, and we get the per- we get <laughs> we. Get- <laughs> It's so strong that it like pushes, you know, Gumja's hair back, but she just smiles and she's it's a really great shot. Hark Ijong, that's the priest man. 
he shows back that Gumja has been working with his wife. And when back goes to pay him, this made me laugh so hard. What, me too. I had to go back and watch it again. <laughs> me too. It was so so back goes to like pay him the money, and Lee Jung says it will be used wisely for the Lord's work. And um, Beck takes a bill back, like just wordlessly. <laughs> Beautiful. So then he hires two assassins to kill Gumja and Jenny, here. including Song Gang Heart. Heart. I do love him. We love I him. I was so happy to see him. Me too. And he, of course, was in sympathy for Mr. Vengeance. He had a very major role in that movie. And if you haven't seen a lot of Korean films, you might know him from Parasite. He was the lead in that movie. Well, that doesn't go very well for the assassins because <laughs> um, Gumja dispatches them pretty easily. They do it. They do manage to chloroform Jenny, though she's unconscious. But that's actually pretty fortunate for the next part of the plan. So they go back to Back's house. Back's wife has sedated him, and now he is passed out. We see that she's been beaten pretty badly. There's a great shot where, like, you know, then he, because at first, at first you feel a little bit hopeless because you just see him eating and her tied up in the chair. But then he finally falls from the food, which also was a drug that the guy at the bakery had given them. And then we see her face like looking down on him and she's all bloodied and her smile's bloody, but she's like scackling. Um, Just man, they hate this guy. So he's all passed out and he's on the floor and Gumshot just cuts off a bunch of his hair in this frenzy. Jenny is still passed out, but Gumshot reads Jenny's letter, which is written in English. So she's got to translate it like word for word into Korean. But she says that um, she's not sure if she forgives her, but she thinks that Gumja should say sorry at least three times. So Beck finally wakes up and he finds that he's bound and gagged in this abandoned school. So next she makes Beck translate the words, her words, to Jenny. And there were a couple that I really liked. Um, One was, when you were growing in me, I felt like my wallet was growing fatter. Oh, and she says, you know, she was a sweet girl and she would smile at strangers. And she says, once I'm done with this man, I'm going to return you to Australia. Everyone makes mistakes, but if you sin, you have to atone for your sin. And Jenny's like, well, why, what are you going to do with this guy? Are you going to kill him? And she's like, yeah. And she's like, why? And she says, because he made a sinner of me. And uh, Jenny wants to know details. And she says, this man kidnapped and killed a boy and I helped him. And then Jenny says, do you want me to say sorry to his mother? And Gumja just like laughs and cries because it's so sweet and so dumb. It's just like not. (laughs) (laughs) But Gumja uh, says sorry to to Jenny four times. 
And we see Jenny count with her fingers. So here's where the twist comes. So Gumcho is all ready to kill Beck. And, but then, okay, this is so creepy, right? His, his alarm on his phone goes off and his alarm is this child's voice that says like, teacher, it's time to wake up. Teacher, it's time to wake up. It's like so goddamn creepy. It would have been creepy anyway, but that little detail. Also, did you notice he has teddy bears on his tie? No, I didn't. Oh. So anyway, she discovers that on the phone, remember this is 2005. So just think about Flip phone, baby. Flip phone. And he's got all these charms. So we've got one Mo's red marble as the very last charm. But... There are four other charms on this cell phone. So that means that there were four other kids that were killed. So she chokes him and slaps him and kicks him. And then she sets him back up in the chair and she shoots both of his feet. So it's so funny when we put these films together and this kind of thing happens because I didn't remember that she shot him in both his feet. Yeah, me neither. I didn't put the connection either. (laughs) That's so crazy. So she goes to the detective and she points out that if he had put the real killer away, those four children wouldn't have died. They find the videotapes of the kids in Beck's house. And and they watch them, and the detective is so moved that he he vomits. And the, these scenes, like, I it was better this time because obviously, again, I, I knew what was coming, and I could just appreciate the kids acting and whatnot. But the first time watching any of like the videos of the kids was like horrible. Like again, I I, enjoy, I actually not like enjoyed it, but like. I could admire like the kid actors for what they did, you know, and, and how it was shot, but like, it's like kind of brutal. So all the parents of all the victims are brought together. And this is kind of interesting. I wanted to get your opinion on this. There's like a preview. It's silent, but we see their faces and we see like, like just their reactions and, Um, Like one man just has his mouth hanging open and one woman like falls to the ground and it's just like a bunch of like little snippets and all that's going to play out in real time. But we just sort of get this like preview. I liked it. I think I liked it because again, this is a really tough part and I feel like you, the audience, you kind of get a nice an idea of what's going to happen. And I feel like this in a way like micro doses you on like the... (laughs) on the agony beforehand so that you're a little bit more prepared for it. Cause I think if it was just like, you know, if the hits just kept coming, yeah, I feel like that might be like an unpleasant viewing experience, but I, I, I liked it. I think it's a really interesting choice. I'm not sure if I've ever seen that before. Yeah. For Again, like if you're watching this for the first time cold, you might be like, what is, what is going on? Mr. Park, Mr. Pack. Anyway, Gumcha gives them so so they they're there and she explains everything. She explains that he would move from school to school. The children that he took were never in his own class, so he was never under suspicion. But what he would do is he would 
take them and videotape them and then kill them and then call the parents and, you know, for ransom and play the video in the back. So the parents obviously would think the child was still alive. And, and she's like, just, you know, unfurling all this information in front of them. And they're just sort of taking it in. And she says, so you have a choice, like the detectives right here. So if you want him to face lawful punishment, we can go that way. Or you all can kill him today. And they, they just have this discussion. And I love these ethical discussions in movies, you know, so they're trying to figure out like, what's the best thing to do. And they're like, yeah, the police are really not. <laughs> the Clearly they couldn't even, <laughs> yeah. Like figure yeah. it out. And then they're like, should we go in all together? Should we go in one by one? And they're like, well, wait, 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 maybe Gumja should be the one to kill him. And then, well, what if people inform on other people? And she goes, let me just say, <laughs> I've killed in prison and I found him. So let me just say, no one's going to inform on anybody. Uh, but they also agreed to have a photo taken as like insurance. Uh, one most parents are my favorite because she she's into it. <laughs> she's up for it, but her husband is not. He doesn't he doesn't want to to engage in this at all. But they need they decided that they need everybody, at least one representative from every family to to go in and be a part of killing this man. So the woman decides she'll do it because she's, he's also kind of been like speaking for her. Like, well, she's, she's really like, you know, weak, weak hearted. So I, I don't know. And, and she's like, no, it's okay. Like I brought my medicine. <laughs> yeah. She goes, I, I took a sedative beforehand mm -hmm. and she's like, you couldn't even deal with like her amputated finger. So like, how are you going to deal with this? But I love them so much. Also, we see that all this whole time, Gumja has set up a speaker, which has been playing in the room. So Beck has heard all of this conversation, and he knows that they have all agreed to torture and kill him. And he just sort of like slumps, like he's just like <laughs> <laughs> given up. Oh, and now we get the whole sequence, and I just love it. They're all sitting on this bench. They're passing these like sheets, like, like, like transparent raincoats, like to each other um, because there's going to be a lot of blood. There's one woman who just like takes a sip from her flask. And then she just empties the flask. <laughs> one man offers his knife to another man. He it's seems so like sweet. He, he just has a like a stick and he goes, Oh, I think I'll be fine, as he like puts on this like battle axe looking thing. <laughs> the detective tells the mom of Wonmo how to stab him so that she doesn't get hurt herself. And he, he's like, Everybody pay attention. <laughs> when she comes back out, she's just dissociated like she's just like stunned and she sits down she's covered in blood 
her husband, who never even put on the plastic, he just hugs her like mm-hmm. so hard. It's a beautiful moment. Then there's a shot of four, like two couples standing in front of him. And one of the, one of the husbands says, this isn't going to bring our son back, is it, honey? And Beck is like, yeah, 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 yeah. Good thought. Good thought. He's gagged, so he can't say anything, but he's like, ah. And um, they like just jump on him. And it's beautiful. There's a little conversation outside that one family is pretty poor. And she's saying to this more affluent woman, I mean, at least you have money. So like your life isn't as hard as our life. Like we had to scramble to get the ransom money. And now our relatives won't even talk to us. The grandmother who she's talking to, she's like, uh, well, my daughter-in-law killed herself and my son left the country. We all have stories to tell. I like that moment. And she's the one who delivers the fatal blow. She sticks her grandson's scissors in the back of Beck's neck. And it's real quick. She just does that and goes back and sits down. And she's just so classy. Yeah. So classy. Then we get the cleanup scene. (laughs) Which is amazing that they have this. So at first I didn't know what this was, but it's his glasses, like just swimming in this like pool of blood. They have collected all the blood onto this like white sheet. And also they they do a cool choice of making, they've slowly made all of this like black and white. And I feel like it's probably because it would be really nasty (laughs) to show all of that. Okay. I did want to mention that there are two versions of this film. Yeah, I have never seen the black and white version. Oh. So it sounds like the so so the version I saw it just stays in color the whole time. The version oh. you saw is it starts in color and then gradually over the course of the movie it turns into a black and white movie. And it's very clever how they do it because not only is there that effect but there's also the costuming. So in the beginning we see her in these like bright colors and there's like that bright um, wallpaper that we saw before. Yeah. And, and as we get toward the end of the movie, we're dealing with like grays and browns and she's wearing all black. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I, I, have- I think it's, I highly recommend, I mean, maybe it's just cause I found it on a totally legal website where they put <laughs> different versions of movies. Um, yeah. Because a part that was really beautiful was after they've cleaned up everything when they're when they're eating cake together, they're all holding like the the charms and all of those are in color, but oh. everything is black and white. And it was very like it made my heart soft. Oh, gosh. And I felt bad for them. <laughs> they dig a hole. They dispose of all the weapons and everything. And Beck is put into the hole as well. And then Gumja's like, could I just, could you just step aside for a second? And she shoots him in the face. She didn't take part in any of the torturing of him. And then she throws that beautiful gun into the, into the hole. And they all go back to the Naruse bakery and have cake. 
Um, one man starts singing happy birthday and it's a little weird, but they all gradually join in. Then they give Gumja their account numbers so they can get that ransom money back. Oh, that was one thing that was a whammy that he, when she was spelling out the whole thing about the ransom and everything, and somebody says, why would he need all that money if he didn't have kids? And she doesn't want to say it. But then finally she says he wanted to buy a yacht. Just but like, they, fuck this guy. Yeah. But, um, but of course they're going to return all the ransom money back to the families. And then one father says that in France, when there's a pause in the conversation, they say an angel is passing. That's that was the moment when every all the mementos were in color right after yes. that, which was very sweet. And there appears to be a mist that's sort of mingling with the light fixture above them. And then gun chick, like the dummy that he is, like the clueless <laughs> whatever that he is, he walks in. And everyone's like, oh my gosh, it's snowing. And they all just file out. And Gumja's in the bathroom. She removes her eyeshadow. And then a red marble rolls toward her and a mist forms. And she sees a oh, six-year-old Wonmo smoking a cigarette. <laughs> she goes over to him and he transforms into his 19-year-old self. And she starts to speak to him and he puts a gag in her mouth. And he stands up. And he just sort of looks down at her and gives her the slightest smile and leaves. Now, Jenny is awakened by the, quote, smoke. And Gunshik is following Gumja. He's, um, Gumja's carrying a cake. And he's singing the song about how she walks in high heels. She doesn't look back at me or something like that. I don't know if it's really a song or what it's it was. cute, though. And Jenny walks in her jammies and her bare feet, and she narrates the end of the movie. And she says, Gumja made a mistake in her past, and she used others to get her needs met. She can never find redemption, but despite of this and because of this, I liked Gumja. And Gumja re reveals a white cake and it's shaped like a tofu. And the little girl takes a little bit of frosting on her finger and eats it and then offers some to the mom who, who won't take it. But um, Gumja says, be white, live white like this. And then Gumchik and Jenny are, they have their heads up to the sky because it's snowing and they're like collecting snowflakes on their tongues and everything like that. And um, she, she's not doing that. And then she just sort of slams her head into the cake and she's just like moving it back and forth. And some people have suggested it's like the smothering of one mo with the pillow. I think she's just trying to, she's crying and she's just trying to get the redemption that she wanted. Yeah. Yeah. I, I thought it was more so like that, like get as much as she could. And Jenny in voiceover says, farewell, Gumjashi. And that's the end of the flick. There are a couple of cool dissolves that I liked a lot. When she goes to meet 
a woman who I think she was a sex worker, but now she's a hairdresser. There's like a, a picture of her on the door and then it like shatters as the door opens. And then there's another nice dissolve where Gumja after Beck has been dispatched, she's like laugh crying into the camera. Mm-hmm. And then there's a dissolve against the white snow of the TV that Jenny is watching. Mm-hmm. So that's really nice. Any other thoughts um, before we talk about Letterboxd? I think that this movie is, I mean, like all the actors, amazing. All the, the visuals, amazing. I don't, it's, I, I, I'm so happy that I watched it again because I, I really don't think I could appreciate how good it is the first time. Yeah, I think you definitely have to watch it at least twice because I saw things, this is probably like my fifth watch and I, I saw things that I hadn't seen before. Yeah. What does Letterboxd have to say about it? Pest Industries gave it five stars. This film provokes contrasting and dissonant emotions in the viewer better than any other beauty and disgust fun and despair bliss and sadness satisfaction and emptiness no fact three gave it five stars this is how you make revenge films promising young woman please take notes from the goat park chanuk agreed if you like kill bill and lady snowblood I highly recommend watching Lady Vengeance. It's the third and final installment of Park Chanuk's Vengeance trilogy, from Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance to Old Boy. He has a way of twisting disturbing films into visually striking violent dramas that stick with you. Seriously, when does he ever miss? And this is called The Vengeance, the final movie in the Vengeance trilogy, but it's more of like... They're all about vengeance, but there's no like narrative through line. Um, I wish they weren't called a trilogy because it's just like kind of misleading. It's just yeah. like three variations on a theme, basically. Yeah, but they're all very unique. Yes. Kay Tall gave it five stars. Horribly beautiful. Amo Gus gave it five stars. Had a hard time trying to rate it, but was way too fun not to give a perfect score. It also had an adorable cat, and Song Gang Oh was in it for a few minutes, which is pretty peak, if you ask me. Elle gave it five stars. Park Chanuk killing off men in his movies is my favorite genre now. Rusty Hyena gave it five stars. This movie is really good and very fun for about the first two thirds. Then it swiftly turns not fun at all, but to balance that out, it becomes incredible. I have not had an emotional gut punch this strong in a long time, and it lasts for 40 minutes. Masterpiece. Not everybody thought it was a masterpiece, though. Omar Al-Mayara gave it a half star. Sympathy, no. Boredom, yes. (laughs) AAMJS gave it one and a half stars. After watching Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance and Old Boy, I had high expectations. However, what I got was a shallow film with serious pacing issues and a reliance on shock value. 
setups introduced at the beginning of the film either amounted to nothing or were never mentioned again. On the plus side, I did appreciate the appearances by the actors from the previous films that I mentioned. Um, sorry, AAMJS, watch it again. Everything pays off. Yeah, like I, I <laughs> don't feel like there was any part of me that was like, but what about that? Like, I feel like it all. Guru Nathan gave it one star. I don't know why, but I didn't like it. Honest. <laughs> Love underscore crazy underscore you gave it one star. I get it, but it was way too much. <laughs> Irina gave it one star. Me gusta el poster y nada más. I think it says, I like the poster and nothing else. Fair. <laughs> Luis gave it one and a half stars. Pesimo. I think I'm just going to try to find one of those every time. <laughs> All right, trivia. The snow during the closing scene is not real. They brought two trucks of salt and scattered it all over the street. The falling snow is CGI. The bakery that Gumja works in is called Narusei, which is the name of the Japanese director, Mikio Narusei. Oh. Having wanted to make a film on a middle-aged woman, middle-aged. <laughs> Hold on. Middle-aged. So she's, she's going to die at age 60 is what you're saying. <laughs> like what? But it says, uh, having wanted to make a film on a middle-aged woman's revenge, the director originally considered casting Dushim Ko for the part of Gumja. However, he had to abandon his plan for a couple of reasons. He found that Ms. Ko was rather old for the character and was afraid that the movie would look quite similar to John Cassavetti's Gloria from 1980. Gumja quotes Mr. Beck about how there are, quote, good and bad kidnappings, with the good ones being those where the child is safely returned after a ransom has been paid and thus actually brings the family closer together and makes them happy. This whitewashing reason is exactly what Ryu's anarchist girlfriend told him in sympathy for Mr. Vengeance to convince him to kidnap a child. It therefore can be seen as a coming full circle from part one to the trilogy to part three. How would we rate it? I thought we could rate it in revenge cake. Uh, five cakes. Yeah. I can't think of what I would change personally. Actually, I think I'm going to maybe go like 4.75 just because there are a couple of shots that I feel are like they're artistic, but I'm not sure they are helping to tell the story. Like they're pretty, but it's so, it's so good. It's like just so damn fucking good. I'll probably give it five stars. Five cakes, you mean? Five revenge cakes. What have we learned from this? Hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. <laughs> uh, I don't. I I feel like I understand why you would present this in like a philosophy class because I think it it is a very good illustration of because obviously this is a specific situation that I. I could never really be like replicated in real life but i do feel like it is a interesting question to ask yourself like what would you do in this situation and 
I find myself totally understanding why they did what they did. I mean, I feel like with this movie and with, um, well, certainly with Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance, where there's like no, just revenge just leads to more revenge in that movie. But in this one, what do you think? I think they're fine. I think the parents are fine. I think I think so too. And I feel like that like I, I don't know this I feel like it's an interesting perspective of like what if something was kind of I mean it's not tidy obviously Gyumja herself is like forever her her life is forever affected by this and that can't change. She didn't find the redemption that she wanted. But I think like she had a goal. She set out to do it and she did do it and didn't really lose what she hadn't already lost. And I, but I feel like the way she, she looks at things is like so unforgiving. Like she says, this man kidnapped and killed a little boy and I helped him. Well, not really. Yeah. You didn't know. And then she's like, she, she had to, she had to to confess to the crime and go but her away. Her daughter wouldn't get hurt. So her daughter wouldn't get killed. Yeah. But then she's like, "But then you had to grow up without a mother." Well, no. Yeah, she has a great family. She has a great family. So I just feel like, and then and then she basically at the end is like, "I can't be your mother because I'm too big of a sinner," and you know, you have this opportunity to live white, and it's like. Jesus, lady, get off the cross. I feel like she's definitely got like if we're just looking at her if she was a real person, definitely should just go to therapy for a while. I feel <laughs> like she hasn't really had a chance to be like uh she hasn't been anything except the these traumas. Yeah, and I and I do think she thought she was going to feel like elation. And she doesn't, yeah. you know, but also if, if she's like not a real person, if she's like vengeance, you know, then, mm-hmm. or, or it's like a fairy tale or something like that, then, you know, it's just a silly question. But I, I just feel like, I, I just found myself just being kind of annoyed. Like, it's okay. Like, and, yeah. and there's this whole thing that goes through the whole movie about even even Beck says to one of the parents, nobody's perfect. Well, true. But no, you do deserve to be yeah. tortured and killed. Yeah. You know, the rest You're a of special us, kind of fucked up. Yeah, the rest of us, no. But you, if anyone does, you do. Because, yeah, I mean, that's what that's what Gyumja needs to realize is like at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what she did. He was going to do what he was going to do, you know? Yes. And I'm obviously not advocating for anybody to go out there and, and kill somebody who you suppose, you know, deserves it. Obviously not. But like in the context of this movie, like she did prevent other kids from getting killed, you know, it's like, she did yes. like it, it stinks that she can't uh he he he's an evil force that would have found some other girl to help him. 
Yeah, for sure. He didn't need her. She was just convenient because she had that baby and that was leverage for him. But yeah. Um, would we watch it again? Yes. For sure. <laughs> and uh, do you have a favorite scene? I mean, I think I do think that the that the effect of the black and white, like mm-hmm. that whole sequence is is very was very powerful this time. But honestly, I, I just feel like the great thing about this movie is how how much it keeps like un unfurling. I feel like anytime I learned some new information, that was my new favorite point of the movie. Yeah, I can't really point to any one thing. I do like the belch. That's really amazing. There's sort of like images that I really like a lot. I love him on like the dog, the dog man thing. That's so crazy. Who wins the You Fool Award? The detective? Oh, the detective. Not to be mean, but... No, to be mean. Like, you kind of didn't do anything, huh? All he all he wanted to do was close the case. And we've seen this in other Korean movies, and it's not just a Korean thing, but I mean... Yeah, just trying to get... Don't do that. Yeah. Detectives. <laughs> hey, if it's your literal job to find out who's doing this, maybe do your literal job. Oh, my just God. Just a thought. Should we shut it down, Mac? Shut it down. I didn't rewrite the outro, so I'm just going to wing it. (laughs) Hell yeah. Thank you for joining us for this episode and for all your support. It means the world of horror to us truly. Next time, it's Mac's pick of genre. And what would you call your genre next week or next time with 100 monsters and creeping flesh? I would call it... Early creature features that have an interesting application of effects. Okay. That's my genre. Okay, awesome. You're going to have to tell me that again because I'm totally going to forget. But then um, the time after that is going to be my pick and I'm doing based on a true story movies. And we will do Snowtown from Australia and Sacramento. Ty West's masterpiece of found footage, which you know is not my favorite, but I do like that movie from the U.S. We also want to let you know to look out for some minis. And these are foundational horror films, films from before the year 2000. And the next one on the docket is Rebecca Hitchcock's Rebecca, which friend of the show, Quinn McLaughlin is going to help me talk about mac what do you have going on well you can catch me live on twitch every monday tuesday and thursday at 6 30 p.m eastern time at twitch.tv slash the gay jimmy buffett you can also find me on instagram at the gay jimmy and on twitter at the gay jimmy b art um where i post art We would welcome your support in the form of a five-star review or thumbs up on your preferred listening platform. Remember, Wohos, we love you and don't go into the basement.